Are you ready to jump into some true crime docs, crime thrillers, and more? Check out our website for an extensive list of our favorite movies and shows at thesirenspodcast.com slash watch, and find our favorite true crime and thriller books and authors, some covered on the show, at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. You can even find special deals for Amazon Music, Audible, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and even Grubhub. If you're looking to jump in immediately, check out our pinned Facebook post for some streaming service free trials on us. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. August 2014. Glenna Harris. She says she met a charming stranger at a gas station in Ada, Oklahoma. R.J. Thompson told her how much he liked her dog and asked her for her number. She said she hung out with him a few times, but never alone, until one day in August when he asked her to go with him to bale hay. Quote, he picked me up and we went to Seminole County, Harris said. While on the road, Harris claimed Thompson snapped, quote, within seconds, it was seconds, and it was just unbelievable, something nobody should have to go through, end quote. Thompson allegedly started beating her while driving down back roads. He didn't say anything. He just started hitting, Harris said. Harris made her escape on Highway 56 near Sasakwa, Oklahoma. She was so desperate to get away from the alleged physical abuse that she jumped out the car window and flagged down a stranger driving by. He slowed down and I jumped through his passenger side window and I just jumped in and I told him to drive because this guy was going to kill me, she said. The stranger drove her to the gas station at Rivermist Casino a few miles away where law enforcement stepped in. October 12th, 2014. A woman called authorities and said she had been assaulted. Pontotoc County Sheriff deputies responded to the woman's residence on County Road 1549, near Ada, Oklahoma. I immediately noticed injury to the victim's face where she had been assaulted, Deputy Travis Wilson said in a report. The woman said her ex-boyfriend, R.J. Thompson, was parked outside her residence, where she went outside to see what he wanted, and he was holding duct tape and a knife, and allegedly grabbed her and dragged her into his SUV, which had a tarp laid out in the back, she said. The victim said that he threatened to cut her throat and punched her in the face several times. The victim advised she kicked the knife out of his hand and started screaming, which caught the attention of a neighbor who heard dogs barking. The victim advised she was then able to get out of the truck and run to the front of the residence where she believed she would be safe. The victim couldn't give any more information about who Thompson was, a date of birth or a description, only that He stayed at her home a couple of times, and they dated for a short while. January 14th, 2015. A woman contacted police after reading the Ada News about R.J. Thompson being arrested for allegedly raping a different woman. She said 
that R.J. Thompson, whose photo was in the paper at the time, was the same man who attacked her in October. In that case, an Ada woman told police she was kidnapped, bound, and beaten, and sexually assaulted. Ada Detective Destry Musgrove said Thompson reportedly kidnapped a 36-year-old woman from her residence on Short Street in Ada, Oklahoma, January 9, 2015. Musgrove said Thompson and the woman knew each other but did not elaborate on the relationship. Thompson forced the woman into his vehicle, Musgrove said. Thompson then drove the victim into Seminole County where he allegedly sexually assaulted her. And then he drove the victim to his residence in Cole County where he reportedly beat, bound, and continued to sexually assault the victim and kept her for most of the day. Now, for those of you who don't know Oklahoma very well, Seminole, Oklahoma is in Seminole County. It's about 30 minutes away from Ada. It's like 30 minutes north of Ada, Oklahoma. And then Cole County, where you have like Colgate, Oklahoma, is about 25 minutes south of Ada, Oklahoma. So when this victim says that he drove her to Seminole County, and then all the way back to his residence in Cole County, that's, we're looking at about an hour that she had to ride with him. The victim stated that Thompson debated on whether or not he was going to kill her, but she convinced him to drive her back to Ada and let her go. Thompson was then arrested in Kanawha on January 10th, and he was charged January 12th with kidnapping, forcible sodomy, two counts of first-degree rape, assault and battery, and pattern of criminal offenses. They suspect that there were way more than just three or four at this time, and that he was actually a serial rapist. So I do actually have in hand RJ's appeal, and I will upload that onto the website. However, I'm not going to read it, uh, because one of his victims um, did not make it to trial. She is suspected to have overdosed right before trial. She went into a coma for about a week, and then she passed away. In that appeal, he describes her as, I just, I don't feel like victim shaming. So if you want to read into that, if you want the details on his appeal, I'll put it on the website for you to go in there. All you have to do to get into our case files is sign up as a member on our website, and then you can go to www.thesirenspodcast.com slash case files and you'll find all of our um, if it's like a pdf or if it's something like that then I've uploaded it in there or like crime scene photos stuff like that it's all in there so I'm just gonna pop that in there if you want to look over it it's it is long he was appealing because she had died before she could testify and they used her grandmother in the trial to testify for her and they also used the same nurse to testify in the trial for her um, and he was saying that this is hearsay now I have an attorney here she actually prepped the same nurse uh, that we're also going to talk to later on during the trial now because of HIPAA and um, attorney client privilege stuff like that we're not going to get into too much detail about what they saw Um, what we're really going to talk about is procedures, why this is actually not hearsay and what it's like step by step. If you decide to come forward, if you have been assaulted or if you have been raped, 
what are you to expect? And that's what a sane nurse is. A sane nurse is a forensic nurse. They're the ones who, who do the examination. The, they do the rape kits that you hear about. And so we're going to talk to her and we're going to see exactly what to be prepared for if we ever need to do that. So Investigator David Hansen, formerly with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office, uh, now the Seminole Police Chief, and Detective... Destry Musgrove of the Ada Police Department conducted a statewide investigation lasting over three months. During the investigation, it was found that Thompson was a serial rapist, and he had at least eight victims over a 30-year period. At the time of his arrest, Mr. Thompson was caught in a Conawa apartment complex parking lot stalking his next victim. It is believed by investigators that there are many more unknown victims of R.J. Thompson. All of his victims told investigators a similar story concerning what happened to them, all of the rapes involving kidnapping, brutal beatings, and rape. If you think that you may have possibly been a victim of R.J. Thompson, you can call the Ada Police Department. You can call Crime Stoppers. He has spent a large portion of the last 30 years in prison for multiple violent offenses. In 2017, he went in front of of District 22 Judge Kessinger, Assistant District Attorney Tara Portillo, and sealed his fate. In a jury trial that lasted four days, Mr. Thompson was convicted on six charges that he faced. Mr. Thompson was given four life sentences and 40 additional years. Thompson has been accused of sexual assaults in Tulsa County, Cole County, Pushmataha, Muskogee, Pittsburgh, Seminole County, and Pontotoc counties. He has been in and out of prison for decades. I'm going to introduce my guest real quick. I have uh, Carrie White on with us today. She's an attorney, and she actually worked on this case, and she's going to be my guest co-host today. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Question. What does it mean by a pattern of criminal offenses? That's the first time I've seen that. A pattern of criminal offenses is, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, You are a serial rapist. You are a serial killer. You are maybe a serial burglar. Um, But it's something that you repeatedly do. And um, a lot of the time when they charge that, um, that heightens the sentence of what you will get. Um, you know, it's like a, a, an addendum to the sentence. You're going to get five more years because you had a pattern of these offenses. So is this, is that why they decided to charge all of all six of these together? I think they decided to charge all six of these together. And just let me go back real quick. I did not work on this case. I worked kind of as a consultant kind of behind the scenes on this case. So I didn't work uh, directly on this particular case. But I think the reason that they decided to, to put them all together is because a lot of these women who came forward were um, women that this had occurred in the past. They didn't come forward right away. Right. Um, they waited until maybe he was caught on this, the, the, the bigger case, and then they came forward. So it was really kind of a he said, she said kind of thing for these um, older cases. They had the most evidence in Pontotoc County, and the prosecutors from all of those counties, Seminole, uh, Cole, and Pontotoc, got together and said, look, 
this is where most of our evidence is here in Pontotoc County. They conferenced about it and said, yes, let's do all the cases there together. The evidence um, will be greater if we compile these as opposed to doing them one at a time. And so I think that's why they made that decision. Statements that she made to the police after the alleged crimes were not admissible in court. Uh, However, the statement she made to the SANE nurse during a rape examination and to her grandmother afterwards were allowed in court. Um, And so I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to ask you, what is hearsay? Just what is it? So hearsay is a statement that is made by a third party. People who are charged or defendants have a right to confront the people who, uh, you know, witnesses. They have a right to confront these people that are saying um, whatever about them. In this instance, those that person, um, the woman he abused, was not available. Her grandmother and the same nurse were third parties that 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 she talked to. So it's so, like saying so and so said so and so said this. Not they told me directly, but so and so said that so and so said that you know this happened or whatever. So well, if it's if it doesn't come directly from a witness on the stand. It's considered hearsay. Okay. Um, and um, we're calling her Virginia. Virginia, yeah. Virginia could not appear because she was, you know, because of her mental uh, mental health issues and her uh, medical issues. She could not appear. And so she would be the witness that, that he was um, under constitutional rights, would have an opportunity to confront. Her grandmother just heard what Virginia said. She didn't really have any actual knowledge of what R.J. Thompson had done. The same nurse who did the um, domestic violence exam and the, the rape kit exam only heard what R.J. Thompson had done to Virginia. She had no firsthand knowledge. So those were considered hearsay. And that is what, what R.J. Thompson uh, based his appeal on. Right. What prosecutors for Pontotoc County are saying is that there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. And those exceptions, a couple of them, which are pertinent here, are excited utterances and medical records. Virginia's grandmother, when R.J. Thompson dropped her off, she ran into the house. Her grandmother was there. She said, Grandmother... I'm paraphrasing, I've been attacked by R.J. Thompson. That's an excited utterance. She was, you know, in a state of of excitement. Um, So that statement is allowed. The other uh, exception is the medical records exception. And the reason that that is an exception is because um, people don't generally lie to their medical provider. Right, because they want the best care they that want they the can best, get. That's exactly right. right. They want the best care they can get, so they tell their medical providers, probably more than medical providers yeah. want to know. Yeah. Um, a nurse is a medical provider. A doctor is a medical provider. A mental health specialist, you know, therapist, whatever, those are medical providers. And so the same nurse who did the rape kit, Virginia told her what had happened to her. 
Virginia was not able to testify. So that sane nurse was basically Virginia's voice at trial. Right. Virginia told her everything that had happened Mm -hmm. um, between her and R.J. Thompson. While she was doing the exam. While the nurse was doing the exam. So the nurse not only saw all the injuries... She saw Virginia's mental status. Right. She heard, uh, you know, all of the story. And so she was able to repeat that at trial because it all fell under a medical record. Okay. Um, well, that clears that up. So then Judge Steve Kessinger followed the jury's recommendation that, that uh, and sentenced Thompson to life in prison for each count of rape. Now, I did not know until recently that you could get a life sentence for rape. I, I think that judges have in their discretion, um, you know, there are um, certain uh, amounts of time that the law actually calls for. In Oklahoma, we have enhanced sentencing. Right. That comes back to that pattern of criminal offenses. Right. So the judge has in his discretion to give the maximum or Which is you life, know, right? Lower, you know, something lower. And and so I think the judge in this instance was absolutely correct in the sentence that he got for that. Yeah. So uh he actually received twenty years for the kidnapping and twenty years for the sodomy on top of those life sentences. So, but this was, this was the second trial that he had because the first trial, they actually had a juror who was talking outside of, and and they, they declared, um, that he had done misconduct or something, uh, and gone on the internet or something and, and was like looking up Thompson, which if they ask you, if you know anything about the case, that's because they don't want you to know anything about the right. case. So they declared a mistrial on that one. Yeah. Cause that's a no, no. Yeah. But a mistrial doesn't mean, um, that it doesn't get tried again. It just means it just means scratch it. Start over. Start over. <laughs> Got to start over. Yeah. And, and so that's why the sane nurse testimony was so important in the second trial, is because by this time Virginia has passed away. Right. Right. So from, she was from actually her injuries. So she was alive for the first one, and that juror messed it up for everybody. Yes. <laughs> okay. But she she wasn't able to testify then either because yeah. of her 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 you know state of vegetative state but yeah in the second trial she had actually had passed away well and also i can't imagine having to sit in front of everyone and point to somebody and say that's he did that and that would probably be terrifying so um we actually have uh the same nurse that was in this trial now while we can't talk about what she did in this trial um we are going to get to ask her some questions which is this is a big deal because sane nurses don't like to talk to people like me they don't like to talk to just about anybody because what they do is really hard all right so i have deborah campbell here she is a sane nurse and i'm going to let her introduce herself uh, my name is deborah campbell i'm a registered nurse uh 1979 was when I became a nurse, and it was in 2003 that I took some training to become a sexual assault nurse examiner, which we called insane. And then in 2005, I took the training to become a domestic violence nurse examiner. 
um, 2016, I was able to go to the Strangulation Institute in San Diego, California, and a week-long training on strangulation. At the moment, I do a lot of training with uh, law enforcement, healthcare workers, social workers, case workers, uh, really anybody who will listen about (laughs) sexual assault, domestic violence, and strangulation. Um, I also do um, a lead thing. I take care of a program, and I do exams both for sexual assault and domestic violence. So the reason why I wanted to have you on is because what you do isn't talked about uh, in our in our world today. Um, women are very afraid to get rape kits done and they're afraid to come forward. And so I wanted you to maybe just walk us through what happens when a woman comes forward and she needs a, an, an exam done. So what happens first? Whenever there there is that sexual assault, if she can get to a safe place first and foremost, um, and then if she could call somebody that she trusts to get her to like an emergency room, if that facility does not provide those kind of services to do a sexual assault exam, they're usually mandated, like by joint commission, that they have some place that they could send her to. Okay. And uh, when they when they come to a uh, to the eat emergency room, let's say, they the the faculty usually will call like an advocate or the same nurse and tell them that they have somebody in the emergency room, and then the same nurse comes to the emergency room and uh, talks with the patient. So you go to them, they don't come to you. Correct. Okay. Correct. So then what's the process when you do a rape kit? Okay. And and now, I, and I hear you saying rape kit, and that's something that um, is kind of an old term now. Right. It's called forensic nursing. Forensic nursing. You know what? That sounds so much better. I love it. <laughs> and we do forensic exams. Because sometimes the sexual assault may also include, like, strangulation, and it may be in a domestic violence or intimate partner violence relationship. Right. But but when I go and I talk to her for the sexual assault, I uh, have consent that I will have her sign after I've explained to her what all will be uh, included in this type of exam. Okay. Just generally speaking, um, is that you get consent from them. And now in the state of Oklahoma, and I call them my patients. To me, they're not a victim. They're, they will always be my patient, not a victim. Right. I explain to her what's going to go on, that she's going to give me consent to do these exams. She is very um, welcome to stop the exam if she thinks that she for whatever reason she wants to stop the exam, she can. Okay. State of Oklahoma will pay the sexual assault nurse examiner. She will not be charged for that. Okay. She's not to be charged for that exam. Good to know. Good to know. And that I tell her that I'll do like a head to toe assessment. Just if she was at a clinic or came into the ER for, uh, for whatever, I still would do a head to toe assessment as an RN. And then we start talking about specific things, 
I'll take a general history, medical history on her. Um, I listen to her story in her own words. Okay. And the reasoning behind that is that I am able to start thinking about, um, I need to look at this place for possible injury. Okay. I need to, that's what she's telling me. She's got this with trauma. Trauma is something that a lot of people do not understand. Uh, a lot of times uh, patients will have holes in their story, so, so to speak. Everybody thinks they should be able to, like in a linear fashion, tell what happened step by step by step, but that's not how trauma works. Right. After she tells me her story, I have a second part to that. I'll ask her specific questions. Um, about like if weapons were used, if they burnt, you know, them or this specific thrown items thrown at them, that sort of thing. Okay. And then the physical exam that you do, what goes on during that? The physical exam would be that after I took her story and I've got the information and everything, what I usually do is I open up the forensic kit. I have certain ways that I would swab wherever maybe she was touched or penetrated. Mm -hmm. It depends on her story, whether I would swab uh, those places and I put them in a special envelope because this forensic kit gets sealed up and sent to the OSBI. Okay. I collect clothes. I collect usually underwear. And I'm kind of talking as though this was a female that was assaulted. I've done sexual assault exams also on males. When you send this off, now, do they ever, we're talking about um, the R.J. Thompson case right now, and we know that you testified. Do you get called to testify a lot? I, I do a lot. I've testified quite a bit. When we were talking about uh, how testimony from sane nurses, forensic nurses, is no longer considered, or I, I don't know if it was ever considered, but it's not hearsay in these trials. And sometimes you're kind of the only voice that they have. Yeah. Do you ever, I'm sure, you ever get personally involved with these um, victims or patients that you call them? I'm sure it would be really hard not to get attached to some of them. Well, there's a certain way that you approach this. When I do an exam, I'm never there to make any kind of judgment calls or anything. I listen to what they say, and that from that medical aspect, that's how I take care of them. In the case that someone has just encountered a, a rape or something like that, let's say it literally just happened, what advice would you give to them what do they need to do before they get to you well like i said they need to be in a safe place for sure they have to be in a safe place they need to get to a facility where they could have a sexual assault exam now there's a lot of times that they won't want to come or report what's happening to law enforcement but with sexual assault when it comes to um, adults they don't have to report it to the police it can be called a non-reporting or we have a reporting exam uh, if they want it reported then a lot of times uh, they may have already called the police or if they're telling me that they want the police involved then we can contact them then 
So basically what she's saying out there is that you don't have to get the police involved if you don't want to just go ahead and get the exam done just in case. Right. And for in the state of Oklahoma, the rule of thumb for the same nurses is, is that we will do an exam five days out. You have five days from the time that you were assaulted to get the exam. Anytime after that, we really start looking at maybe just taking care of people like having them see their medical doctor or whatever, and then start maybe testing for STDs, HIV, freedom for those things also um, with prophylactics. But usually we, it's the five days, if they'll come in, we can, do the exam and if it just happened and they're getting to the hospital or maybe at a center or whatever if they can try not to drink not to smoke eat um if they need to go to the bathroom when they go pat themselves dry don't wipe okay um they can't stand the thought of have the clothes that they were wearing they can certainly put them in a bag used to we had paper bags now we all have walmart bags or target bags right and plastic if they put the clothes in there don't tie it up that starts uh that breaks down whatever's there any kind of dna that uh the osbi could could find is it a myth uh, when they say don't take a shower after, is that something that you would say as well, or is that just a myth? No, we don't want you to, to bathe either. All of this information is really, really great information, and I'm really glad that you're sharing it with us because um, this podcast is 80% women that listen right. to this podcast. And when I started this podcast, it was, well, we want to tell true crime stories, but we also want to give resources for the people that are listening out there so that they can maybe be vigilant and they can get the help that they need. And I think that the information that you've shared with us today is is just absolutely invaluable. So thank you so much for talking to me. But honestly, I would love to come and be on the podcast and talk about strangulation that would be awesome i will for sure keep you in my contacts thank you so much for um being on with me today you're very welcome Um, i was more than happy to visit with you thank you she was talking about um how trauma skews your memory and that when um a victim is telling their story one of the reasons that police officers or even family don't believe them is because there is holes in their story or they say your story doesn't make sense and the reason it doesn't make sense is because trauma screws with your brain Mm -hmm. so what they can remember is more of of what they hear or what they smell or what they've tasted those are the things that come to their mind first so they may say say i smelled cigarette smoke and then i saw a red truck maybe completely out of order But those are the things that stick in their minds. And so when you go, that story doesn't really make sense. It's not going to make sense because they can't tell it in a linear fashion. They can't tell you what happened at 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock. 
but all they can do is tell you, you know, these are the things that stuck out to my senses. Uh, And so that's, that's one of the main reasons that victims are not believed, domestic violence victims or rape victims. It's weird that you say that because, um, but I was raped when I was 16. I did not know that. Should we stop? No, because I, I think it's important. I was uh, drugged or something. Someone put something in my drink. And I woke up in the back of my own car. And it was just like flashes. Like I literally lost time. And there was someone in my... Um, Someone in the seat with me, and was it was a, a man, but I, I, I couldn't tell you what he looked like. The next time I woke up again was somebody. Uh, we were in a house, some house I don't even remember, and then I passed out again, and I was in a completely separate location, and I remember there being four or five other men watching, and. And I would just pass out over and over again. They kept making me drink something, kept passing out over and over again. And every time I would wake up, I'd be in a different room, in a different situation, something different happening to me around this this big corner from the turnpike, um, like right before you pay the toll. And we got pulled over by an officer. Um, he couldn't tell that something was wrong with me and I had no idea what just really just happened and so I didn't tell him what happened and so he put me back behind the wheel of my own car and and I remember pulling out and I don't remember the drive home wow I remember pulling up into the driveway and now I'm home and I remember holding the ticket that he gave me in my hand and I thought to myself I thought well I can't tell anybody because nobody's going to believe me. I can't describe the person. Right, right. I can't describe the places that I was at. So, I mean, it's weird that you say that because I didn't even remember. Like, I didn't even know that those were trauma responses. Right, they are. And even if if you had not perhaps been drugged, you may not remember that stuff anyway. That may be a trauma response. It may be your brain just blocking that out. Yeah. I mean, there could have been no drugs whatsoever. That could just be your trauma response. Yeah. Because that's the way it happens to a lot of people. And that's why people, police officers and doctors and, you know, whoever, um, don't believe stories. And that's why Deb says, you know, it's not my job to judge. It's my job to take your story. Yeah. Because, I mean, even just then... None of that makes any sense. No. None of that makes any sense. But that's it precisely what I remember. I can't no. tell you what time of day it was. Yeah. I know it went from day to night. Yeah. I, those are all the details that I can give. Yeah. I'd say you're very lucky to make it home. Yeah, very, me too. Very lucky. And I and that's why Deb talked about the reporting and the non-reporting is that, you know, you you can go to an emergency room and get checked out and have those forensic exams done you don't have to if you don't want to report it to police they lock that that kid up they put it send it to osbi it stays in a locker for 20 years and that's something that i didn't know yeah and 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 it stays there 
and nobody knows it has your name on it. You, you get a number. Here's your number to your kit. If you ever want to report, you give this number to us, yeah. and we go and we find your kit in the thousands of kits that are in the OSB right now because women don't want to report. Yeah, and and if I had known everything that she just told me, I might have just gone. I might have just grabbed my keys and gone, and and figured out what I wanted to do about that later. Right. But, but in the moment, I would have gone. I mean, maybe they would have gotten DNA. Who who knows? Right. But you know, in the moment, you're going. Nobody's going to believe this. I can't describe this. But you know, just go and get it done, and then f- figure it out later. Right work once you're working through your trauma like you said it could sit there for 20 years it could sit there for 20 years now i know there is a um statute of limitations Mm -hmm. on rape in oklahoma i forget what it is and it depends on what age you are if you were underage at the time i don't think there is a statute of limitations but really i could be wrong i think it depends on your age Seven years is the statute of limitations on bribery, embezzlement, misappropriation of public money, (laughs) along with a bunch of other things, including rape or forcible sodomy, lewd or indecent proposals, acts against the children, and and stuff like that. So, seven years. You have seven years to figure out what you want to do with that. But if I had known what the process was, maybe I wouldn't have been so... And that you didn't have to call police right away you don't have to call police right away and that's another thing that scared me a 16 year old kid thinking well now the police is going to get involved and so i mean right and i think that um and you may have to ask deb about this um maybe at a later time but i believe if if the um person is under the age of 18 but 15 and over you do not have to have parental consent for a for a forensic exam well good like you would have for a small younger child you know what if you're driving age and and something has happened just go get an exam well that's going to conclude our episode today i know we kind of got deep it's time for us to start talking about these things we're giving you the information we're here to help you that's why we're i'm sharing this information with you that's why i find all of these experts in these fields and this is something that i've been hoping to work up to since i started this podcast so i'm glad that i'm finally at a point where i've made all of these connections and i can bring this information to all of you listeners because I want you to be vigilant. I want you to be safe. I want you to do what's right for you. And if that is to go and get an exam, go and get it. If that's to get out of a shitty relationship, get out of it. Thank you, Carrie, for being with me again. You're welcome. And um, we'll catch you next time. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?